Welcome to the Cambridge Union Society. So today um, we have a really exciting speaker. We have India Willoughby. And India Willoughby is a broadcaster journalist, best known for being the world's first transgender national TV newsreader and ITV's first tra trans loose woman. She's also been a housemate on Celebrity Big Brother and appears on shows such as This Morning and Good Morning Britain and BBC Question Time. Um, India is also currently writing a book about her life. Please give a warm welcome to India Willoughby. Um, so I kind of wanted to start, so the way it's going to work, like all union events do, um, is we'll go through about 30 minutes of a moderated Q&A um, before we go into 30, kind of 30 minutes of an audience Q&A where you all get the opportunity to ask into your own questions um, and things like that. Um, but to kind of begin with, I kind of wanted to ask, so we kind of, I read a bit about this um, in your biography just then, but you've kind of been like what you kind of do is broadcasting on TV. I was just wondering how, what kind of drew you into broadcasting um, and kind of, you know, being on TV and being someone that everyone kind of knows? Um, well, it was a seance with the dead live on late night radio, yeah. which is a bit abstract. <laughs> so initially I, w I left school at 16 and I got this horrible job in Top Man because it was offering the chance of uh, £40 a week, which back in the 80s was quite a lot of money. And um, I thought, do you know what? Instead of staying on and going to university, I'm just going to take this job and get the quick money. But within a year or so, I'd realised that the, it, it wasn't fulfilling in any way. Despite the fact that I got 25% off my clothes, um, it still wasn't very fulfilling. And I thought, well, what, do I, what have I always been good at? And I'd always been good at writing um, in English. Yeah. So I spotted this ad in, in a local paper. Um, and it was a, what was a free newspaper. I'm not even sure they have them anymore. But basically, the premise of a free newspaper was that it made all of its money from advertising. But to justify its label as a newspaper, it had to have copy yeah. around it. So they weren't that fussy who they took on, but they did take me on. And to cut a long story short, I, I was quite good at it. And I was spotted by um, the local, the proper newspaper, who said, well, look, we think you've got a talent and we'll, we'll indenture you. And in, in de being indentured is basically um, a two-way deal where you agree to sign up and do so many years' work for an employer. In this case, it was the local newspaper. And in return, um, you promise that you will work for them for five years, you know, minimum yeah. service. So I thought, well, this is great. You know, I'm going to get a career. And that's what I was doing. And um, I'd done that for a while. And then one, one day, the, the local commercial station, a guy called John Myers, who became a, um, the, the government's person within radio, he was, he was so good at local radio, he, he had a late night show and he asked me to come on because he was doing a live phoning with the dead. And how that worked was he had a spiritualist coming in and they were taking calls, random calls, and the spiritualist was reading the calls 
down the line. And he invited me to come along and, and do a feature, like a colourful um, feature on this. Um, and he loved the feature. And after he read it, he said, look, team, come and work. Because he, he called everybody team. Team, come and work for me. So um, I ended up getting a job in local radio. And the local radio was owned by ITV at the time. And then after that, ITV said, well, look, we like what you do. Why don't you come and read the news for us? And so that's what I did. ITV Border covering um, Cumbria and southwest Scotland um, for seven years. But that was as the old me. Yeah. Um, but obviously, I knew something else was going on in the background, which I'd always tried to ignore. And I thought I, I would go through life successfully kind of keeping it under control and boxed off and not acting on it. Um, but it just got too much for me. And I, and I realised that I can't read the news on a Monday as Jonathan, as I was then, and then come in next week as somebody else, as, as India, as I ultimately be. This was in the 1990s um, kind of time. So I thought, well, TV, for all it pats itself on the back as being very um, woke and all about equality and lovey, it, there were no trans people in TV. And I'd heard conversations within the newsroom whenever a trans story had, had cropped up where people who were otherwise very um, socially aware, you know, about racism, etc., when a trans story come up, came up, they, they would laugh at the individual or they would be quite derogatory. So I thought, it's just not going to work. I can't come out publicly in TV. So I, I actually quit my job um, as an ITV newsreader and um, I disappeared and I went away, and for five years, I had this fantastic secret life because I, I'd come to the conclusion, when I'd looked around, historically, trans people, when they come out, their lives kind of explode, and you never know where the pieces are going to fall. And in a lot of instances, the trans person loses friends, they lose members of their family, um, they almost definitely lose their their job, and it's um, it's quite cataclysmic in a lot of ways. And I, and I was terrified of that, but I still needed to come out and breathe, as it were. So I came up with this crazy idea. I thought, well, if I actually split my life in two and really compartmentalise it, and maybe spend two days a week with my existing friends as the old me, Jonathan, but then I have five days a week in a different city as somebody else, then that would take away the, the stress that I was feeling and the, the, the need to live. And so that's what I did. I ended up, whereas I was living in Carlisle, I left my job and I got an, an a very ordinary office job in the NHS um, in Newcastle, an hour's drive away. And for Monday, from Monday to Friday, I was, I picked a really anonymous name. 
because I wanted to, nobody to pay any attention. So I, I picked the name Joanne Charles. Charles, because Charles used to be my middle name. I thought, well, that'll keep a, a little sort of a link. And I thought, Joanne, it's a nice name, but it doesn't stand out too much. So for five years, I had this yep. office job working as Joanne Charles without the trans tag attached to me. And it was wonderful. Yep. It was just, I was able to kind of orientate myself and, and find who I was. But then after five years, I thought, well, you know, why am I, why am I flip-flopping all the time? I know who I'm happy. And that was the point that I came out and I thought, do you know what? Why should I be forced to give up my job in TV? So I approached people to get back into it. And I ended up um, reading the news for, for ITN, um, Channel 5. And that's when yeah. Loose Women and Celebrity Big Brother came in. And kind of going into a bit of what you said there I mean looking back at the 1980s 1990s mm. I think you see a lot of kind of anti-LGBT backlash in Britain um, and then kind of looking at now where I guess you can say society has become more progressive more woke in a way but I guess you still see so much division and so much kind of demonization of the LGBT community but particularly trans people what do you think has kind of changed as kind of as you've kind of navigated that time period. And what do you think has kind of stayed the same? Yeah, that is such a, a good perceptive question. Um, I, th I think generally speaking, the world has improved on, on equalities. In, certainly within t in terms of race and religion, I think we're, we're a lot more um, aware these days as a whole, um, as society. But I remember when... I did come out, as it were, and I started tra attracting national attention. One of the first interviews that I, I, um, I was invited on to give was on Lorraine, on, um, which is the, the ITV early morning show, which follows Good Morning Britain. And, for, and I don't know if anyone watches Lorraine. Lorraine Kelly is, is a big supporter of the LGBT um, community. So I went on and I did the interview and one of the questions that Lorraine asked was um, how do you think things will go for you from here and for trans people generally? And I remember saying, this was um, 2017 and I remember saying um, I think it's going to be supersonic our acceptance because we've got the internet now and Knowledge is power. You know, what the, the, the big thing that's always held minorities back historically is ignorance, not being aware of the facts, and fear. But with the internet, trans people aren't going to face that. We're going to have it much, much easier than ever before. How naive I was. Because obviously the internet can be used for good, but it can also be weaponized and used for bad. And it very quickly became apparent to me that the, um, the, the status quo, the powers that be, the establishment, wherever, wherever you want to call it, um, didn't really want trans acceptance for, for various reasons, whether you know some groups have religious objections to it, 
Um, others are just to the right politically, and they're, they're historically opposed to LGBT plus across the board. So this was a new thing that they, they didn't want to see accepted. And they, sadly for, for me and the trans community, they have very successfully um, marshaled and weaponized platforms such as Twitter, because trans people at the end of the day, we are a tiny population. We're like 0.2, of the population. Um, so it's very difficult to, to actually make your voice heard. And especially living in a country like the UK at the moment, where uh, effectively the, the press is almost entirely to the right. You know, even the BBC, which has traditionally taken a, a centre ground because of government, what I would term as government corruption, appointments being made by the government um, within the, the institution, they've kind of leaned to the right as well. So when you're taking on mass media and the government, and you're a tiny, tiny population, it's really difficult to get the message out to the public. And, and that is the key at the end of the day. I, th I think the great thing about other minorities um, more recently is that rep representation essentially is everything. Once you see people from minorities that you may not know a lot about, or you work with them and you, and you become friends with them, then any lies or misrepresentation that you've seen or heard on the airwaves, they, they, they just kind of evaporate because you think, well, no, you know, Fred or Susan, I know them, that they're, they're not like that. So all the lies fall away. But unfortunately, trans people... We're kind of still knocking on the door to get that access. And kind of as someone who is one of the most prominent trans people in Britain, how do you kind of find yourself, obviously, navigating that space between... You receive tons of hate online, mm. um, especially on Twitter, um, and through the media, which you say is perpetuated, yeah. um, a lot of kind of the climate that we see today... Um, and also, you know, standing up for the community at the same time, right? And kind of how do you see yourself juggling those two things? Because, you know, it can be extremely personally taxing to have that much hate all the time and, like, to have to go under protection. Um, but at the same time, as you were saying, representation. So how do you kind of find yourself? Yeah, um... I, I, I struggled really badly when I initially um, encountered this. It's, it's essentially a, a tsunami of hate that exists now. Um, and I really struggled for a lot of time with it. But now I've kind of, I've gone through my crying phase and now I'm in, in the zone where, no, I'm not, these people are idiots. Why am I going to shirk back into the, the, the background or, or be ashamed of myself. I haven't done anything wrong and neither has any, any trans person. And while I get it perhaps probably um, more publicly um, than other people just by virtue of my job, um, 
it's happening to every trans person in Britain at the moment, regardless of what their, their background is. And it's no more pronounced for me than it is for them. Yeah. It's, it's equally um, bad. And uh, dealing with it is really tough because obviously we all walk around every day with mobile phones in our pockets or our handbags. Um, and if they decide that they're going to come for you, then there's no escape. And when you have the government chiming in as well, and it's their pronouncements on trans people, such as Rishi Sunak just recently at the Tory party conference, um, effectively saying that trans people don't exist. You know, there are men are men, women are women, and everybody knows that. And then he had a little snigger. Well, that's not very reassuring if you're trans at the moment in, in Great Britain to know that that's how um, the prime minister of the country um, feels. So it, it's really difficult. And I don't think there, there is any um, one prescriptive way of dealing with it because everybody is different. And obviously we, we're, we're holding this event on Trans Day of Remembrance. And before I came here tonight, I, I had a quick look. And um, there are various numbers out there, but I think something like 350 to 390 trans people that we know, know of um, died last year through either violence or taking their own life worldwide, which is terrible. Nobody, whoever you are, should feel that you... The, the, the only escape route is taking your own life just because of who you are. That's not yeah. the society that anybody wants to live in, surely. Um, so it's really difficult. I'm not, I'm not sure what the answer yeah. actually is to the question in, in how to, to escape it or manage it. Um, but the key to it is definitely, as far as I'm concerned, it's visibility and just doing normal things. It's, it's not necessarily um, banging the drum. I wish, it, I wish it was as simple as that and then everybody could stand up and just say that trans people are normal, you know, just get on with it and, and forget about it. But I think it's, it's more of a subliminal thing. Unfortunately, the volume from the anti-trans movement is so loud that it, kinds of, it kind of drip, drip, drips and starts to infect people, e even good people who aren't necessarily um, anti-trans. If their only source of information is mass media and they don't hear the other voice at all, they, they assume subliminally that, that it's uncontested, that that's accepted, that is fact, when it's not the case. So you often end up with trans people such as myself and other people when they, they do get a platform they're trying to take on maybe six months of lies that have just been told and you can't do that in five minutes it's it's such a complex and dense subject and i think picking up on what you said about the government um and in particular about what was said at the tory party conference um about what a man is and what a woman is um and the statistics you pointed out on the climate um 
in the UK for a trans person and what we've seen in the past year, especially kind of looking today and like celebrating the Transgender Day of Remembrance. When we look, I guess, at the opposition too, you kind of don't see much difference. I mean, Mm -hmm. Keir Starmer um, publicly refused to define a woman. Um, You had Rachel Reeves saying that she was going to protect women-only spaces from trans women. And in that kind of climate, when we see what trans people go through every day in Britain, what you kind of see the two major parties saying, what, like, how do you manage to stay so optimistic when, you know, like, is it fair enough then just to expect the Labour Party to hopefully come into power um, at the next general election and then say, but we can push them more to the left, right, on this issue? Or is there more that you see that can happen right now? Or is it, do we then look outside of politics, right? What can we kind of look to in terms of improving the climate that we see today? Yeah, well, well, to be honest with you, I'm not optimistic about Labour coming through. Obviously, I, I don't want a Tory government and because of the system that we have, then then it's only Labour that can replace them. So I, I want Labour to come in in that respect. But I have serious concerns about Labour. Even today, um, the, the Labour Party have issued a, an official statement on Twitter saying, we stand with the trans community on Trans Awareness Week. But that's just not true. They've ran away from the trans community. They've broken every single promise they made to the trans community. And as we're seeing on in other areas as well, unfortunately, Keir Starmer seems to be a, a politician um, who doesn't actually stand by any particular principles that he might espouse. If the wind changes in a different direction, historically, if you look at his track record, he will actually change he he his focus is purely on getting into number 10 and he will throw people under the bus not just trans people people from other demographics um as well so that does not inspire great hope for the future the great hope for me for the future is people like yourselves i think i've come to the conclusion personally i know not everybody in the trans community might might share this but i i think there's a certain cutoff point, which is probably um, maybe mid-40s, 50s onwards. And I'm not sure, unless they're already ready, um, socially aware and sympathetic and understanding of the situation that trans people uh, face, that those people can actually be convinced because of the times that they grew up and the type of media that they digest. The the great hope for the trans community really is going to be a long game, not the supersonic change that I was envisaging when I was on Lorraine. It's actually going to be as long as it took for gay people, for instance, to get rights. Um, Because my, my sense, when I go around the country and talk to people, that there is a massive difference from, I would say, um, certainly 30 and under, you know, maybe 40 and under, it's not such a big issue. Everyone's quite cool about it. You know, they, they don't really have the animosity um, that the older generation do. So I think for the, for the trans community and people like myself, obviously we've got to keep making that argument and trying to fight back as we can it's not going to be a, a quick fix, even when Labour 
um, come in. You mentioned a couple of individuals there, as well as Kia Starmer, um, Rachel Reeves. You know, a lot of her um, statements on record are using what I would call a gender critical um, terminology. You know, um, adult biological male. Um, I think one of them used adult human female. You know, there's Wes Streeting, who again has changed his rhetoric completely because he feels that the Daily Mail or the Daily Express will will come for him. So he threw us under the bus and jumped. Annalise Dodds, who is um, high-ranking within the, the Labour Party, she too, I think she's actually on public record as saying that trans women are, are not women. Um, which is appalling to, to hear. And, and my view is that you, you could literally take any section of society, any section, and you could come up with a very considered reason and argument why they should not have rights by cherry-picking Instances, you know, we have some glasses wearers in, in, in the audience today. You could, you could, and this is the standard of the debate. You know, I, I might point out regarding trans people. They will say, "Well, look, here's a person wearing glasses. Look what they've done. You know, they're they're rapists. These people don't deserve rights. Ban spectacle wearers." That is the level of the debate that we are actually at, and it is absolutely heartbreaking to see politicians respond to that, especially from a party like Labour with the heritage of defending minorities and the vulnerable, heartbreaking. And I guess especially then tying into those conversations and how we hold our politicians accountable, right? They're the very people that are supposed to be representing everyone. And I guess you were talking there a bit about how kind of changing the tune um, on discussions about trans rights and actually standing up for trans people, mm. that is kind of, you see that as kind of a long game that you play, right? That the community has to keep fighting and fighting. Um, what do you think can happen in the short term then, kind of looking in the next couple of years, um, or even in the next couple of months, right, to, take, to change that tune? Um, and especially with holding politicians accountable, the conversations that we have with people, because of course it can be, I guess, uncomfortable for a lot of people mm. to hold their friends accountable um, or to be like, I agree with this political party broadly, but not all the time, right? It's kind of, people get uncomfortable when they're challenged. Um, so in that way, how do you kind of see the best way to facilitate these conversations? And that's not just, I guess, for people who are trans, because I don't think it should always be on like a person from a certain minority group to always hold everyone accountable. But how do you think as kind of a general populace or as young people, we can kind of kickstart those conversations and hold the very people in power accountable for kind of the consequences of their actions? Yeah, I, th I think that's a great question and very perceptive. Um, and there's a few things that I just w want to mention in, in relation to that. Um, I, I think what you've, you've said about trans people, and I think this goes across the board to all minorities, you know, it can be exhausting actually countering the rhetoric that you hear, especially when you're, you're kind of 
the, the, the focus, the target enemy of the government of the, of the time. And I find that a drain. And I know other, other trans people in all sorts of walks find it both exhausting and, and overwhelming, really, because you see all this literature. And the other side, and when I say the other side, I, I'm talking about what's commonly known as the gender-critical gender movement, which is a very sanitized and um, dignified way of saying transphobes, essentially. that They have a, a plethora of reports and studies and pop-up organizations that they've actually created in the last four or five years. They have no long track record, but they will, they will grab um, a, an official sounding name and set up a website. And unfortunately for us, to the public who don't scratch the surface, sometimes they, they assume these people are representing masses of individuals, when in reality there may, may be two people in a bedroom running a website that just happens to have a very impressive looking um, logo. So I think for a lot of trans people, when they're waking up every day and they're seeing this volume of, of hate coming at them, it can be so overwhelming. And that's why they end up in a, a situation where sadly some of them end up thinking, is life actually worth living? Um, the other thing is, I totally get that some people are nervous talking about trans issues, even good people who genuinely want to learn, because the temperature has been raised to such a height. There's a nervousness about maybe asking certain questions, which most trans people are more than happy to answer, because if it's well-intentioned, that is the way forward. We're in Cambridge, you know, education, that's where it's all about. That's the key to everybody having a better life. So, so trans people don't object um, per se to answering questions or personal questions even. It's just the intent that's behind them. And if it's coming from a bad place, then obviously trans people will have their elbows out. And again, it comes down to perception. The only time most people will see a trans person in the UK on media is in a trans on trial situation when they're maybe in this kind of dynamic, but with somebody who's really aggressive and hostile to, to the trans community attacking, going for the jugular. But if you're a, just Joe Public sat at home and this is your only visual of trans people, you're going to see a trans person with their elbows out, maybe looking a little bit spiky and fighting back. And you think, oh, they're, they're quite an aggressive bunch. But obviously we're not. And that plays across all minorities. You know, I, I think all minorities will have experienced this um, during history. So we come back to the question of how... Do you actually take that on and get the changes made? And I think it is just by ordinary conversations. I don't think it's ever going to happen by having some kind of very public summit 
or gathering or some broadcast that is going to change it. It's going to happen at grassroots level, just in, in ordinary bars, in ordinary clubs, restaurants, venues. And I also know that when you hear somebody being um, transphobic, it takes a lot of guts to challenge it. And if, I, if I'm honest, I actually experienced it um, last week, and I didn't say anything just because of I, di I didn't feel safe in the environment I was on. I was actually on a train. I've bored a few people in here about this horrific train journey that I had last week, going from London to Newcastle, which ended up taking nine hours. And I ended up sat on the floor on the carpet in this carriage. And there was uh, an old guy there who'd had a little bit to drink. But he, he was basically just a, a bore. He, he started talking off, talking about the fact that he'd worked on the railways and he had nothing against women. Uh, he had two good women in his life, but the railways went to pot as, start, as soon as they started taking on women. And he said this in front of the whole carriage as if he's, he was addressing the audience and it was a perfectly normal thing to say and everybody kind of looked at each other a little bit nervously then he went on to black people black lives matters and by then everyone's looking at the ground nervously and then he went on to trans and he started talking he was scottish and he mentioned the fact that everybody thinks the SNP's great that lives in England, but they don't have to live under Nicola Sturgeon. And as far as he was concerned, um, if you go to school as uh, Henry initially, then you can't be a Henrietta, can you? And he was asking this question, waiting for people to respond. And nobody did respond, which was a good thing. They didn't condone what he'd said. And I felt this thing, I thought, he obviously doesn't know that I'm trans. I should, do I speak up at this moment? And if I do speak up, probably the whole carriage is going to turn to me and <laughs> I would have an audience. And I didn't do it. And I'm not sure whether that was the right thing or not in that circumstance. Um, I think my judgment at the end of the day came down to the fact that when I looked at him, he, he was an elderly gentleman. He was... 60, maybe 70 years old, and I thought, well, what, what is the point? He's not going to change his mind. But I think if you, each circumstance is different, and I think if you are in a situation where you think there is a chance that you can persuade that person, then I think you should take it. Obviously, your own safety is paramount as well, because in these situations, whatever the the minority is that you may be defending, um, there are certain social occasions or gatherings where it's probably not wise to actually hold your hand up. Yes, it's very brave and you could become a martyr, but um, you could get hurt. So, yeah, I think speak up if you can, when you can, and that's the only way that I can see it changing. And I guess with those conversations and about speaking up, I think with a lot of institutions, especially with the idea of free speech and platforming and what, what voices institutions platform, mm. um, often kind of a lot of the defense of hosting gender critical kind of people um, and voices is that 
you know, a lot of institutions provide the opportunity to challenge those voices or that we should hear those voices out to kickstart those conversations. Um, And, you know, we're not any different. We had last year, we had Professor Kathleen Stock, Mm. um, who's one of the most prominent gender critical kind of theorists um, in Britain. And I guess with individuals like that who do cause a lot of kind of fear-mongering um, and who have contributed to the kind of culture we've talked about today. What do you think the approach there should be in your perspective? Is it about giving those individuals a platform where, yes, they might be challenged or is it about kind of not hosting those individuals in the first place? Yeah, yeah, we, we, we shouldn't host them. I think we've gone down the wrong track as a society. Unfortunately for trans people, it's been the perfect storm of having a government uh, run by the likes of Boris Johnson and and now um, Rishi Sunak um, that are very, very involved in the culture wars. But in a modern society, there is no place for gender-critical views. Just think about this for the moment. If somebody came up and said, look, I'm black critical, and I demand to stand on on the uh, stage or the BBC on Question Time, and um, and talk about how black people are a threat to society in some way, or Jewish critical, or gay critical, people would flinch. They would physically recoil at the shock of hearing that somebody was Jew critical. So why on earth is it acceptable? to be gender critical, and if I'm being absolutely honest here, and they are, to to give them a a small pat, a reluctant pat on the back, the gender critical movement have been brilliant in terms of how they have organised, because it isn't actually gender critical in the sense that we know gender. They're not fighting um, gender stereotypes and situations where women perhaps historically have been barred from certain jobs because it wasn't seen as the done thing. They are actually the transgender critical movement. That is all they are about. And I don't think as a civilised modern society we really should be entertaining um, that line. We shouldn't be putting demographics up for debate um, in any way. And I think it all started with something where everyone, at the time, I remember this, it it may or may not be before your time, but on BBC Question Time, there was a famous episode where at the time um, there was the, the BNP I think it was the BNP he was the head of. It was a guy called Nick Griffin. I don't know if you've, anyone's heard of him. And he was in charge of this um, racist organisation. And the thinking at the BBC was that, why don't we have Nick Griffin on Question Time, the big political show of the day? And they did. And Nick Griffin was taken apart on the program, which initially seemed to be a good thing, but the problem was there, you had opened the door to say that it was legitimate to put this type of person on this type 
of show, which is extremely dangerous. And since then, we've seen Nick, Nick Griffin, Griffin wasn't the smartest person you're going to come across, and he, he was easily um, out-debated by the people on the panel that day. But obviously, there are more sophisticated and intelligent people that hold these views, and they can put their arguments across in a very sanitized, dignified, intellectualized way, where it sounds a lot more digestible because it's coming from somebody who's very middle class, um, has been to university, um, maybe has a background in academia. And again, for the average person on the street who's at, at home that night watching a show on TV, it can be very convincing, these arguments. But the, the principle is, at the end of the day, surely, that no demographic within society is inherently dangerous through just being who they are. You're starting to go down the route of eugenics for that, to say that people are born differently and that they're predisposed to violence or, or crime. And there has never been, as far as the trans community is concerned, despite everything you hear, there has never been a trans crime wave in any country in the world. Trans people have been using all of these facilities and services for legally in the UK since at least the 1960s. And all of these stories about women, women going to be attacked or will lose rights are just farcical. They just do not stand up under scrutiny. I guess one last question from me before we kind of give it away to the audience. Um, and I guess this is a bit ironic since it's kind of what we've talked about <laughs> the entire time. But I guess obviously when you're part of a minority group, you're kind of always expected to be the spokesperson for that mm. minority group, right? To like always stand up for yourself in conversation. Is there any point where you kind of just get sick of it? And you all kind of want to talk about other things? Yeah, all, all the time. I miss my old life because as, as a journalist, you know, you, you could go in and one day you could be talking about biscuits. I love biscuits. Um, or politics or whatever's happening that particular day, whatever the story is. Whereas now, um, you're just seen as a one-trick pony. You know, there's only one subject that British media certainly um, want, want to talk about. And that is so sad because obviously I used to do shows like Loose Women where you would talk on the, the topic of the day. Um, or I used to do before, before incredibly, talk radio didn't used to be right wing. Talk radio literally used to just be a talk station and they had a, a real mix of, of people. Um, so I used to do a show on there with, with Matthew Wright and we would talk about um, whatever was happening each day. And it was great. You know, that's just being a, a journalist. That's a, norm, a normal member of society. Um, whereas now it's just trans and it... it it's exhausting, and um, it, it's a little bit debilitating, actually. It really is. It does start to affect you. But again, I, I think it's important to... I don't want to make a special, too special a case. I, I know I'm here as a trans person on Trans um, Remembrance 
today. But I think a lot of these elements that we're talking about here, um, they apply to all sorts of groups in all sorts of different ways. Essentially, I think it comes down to the power dynamic. People who hold power and can see an advantage in holding a particular group back or labelling them in a particular way will use that. And I think, sadly, that's always going to be part of humanity. To me, it's baffling that any, anyone can be cruel. You know, if you go on Twitter, I look at some of the things that are said, not just about trans people, about other people as well. And I think, what do you get out of tweeting that, of actually writing something like that? But obviously there are people out there that get some kind of buzz and a kick from doing it. And I, I, I don't think we, we will ever get away from that or evolve from it. It's just how do we manage it and how much attention do we pay it? Thank you so much. Um, we just have some time for a couple of questions um, from the audience. So if you just raise your hand, um, we'll go to you. Um, we'll go right at the front there. Um, so for young trans people, there's uh, a lot of conversations surrounding um, the question of social transition, physical transition, mm. especially um, and I guess there's a lot of there are a lot of regulations that governments and uh, health uh, service providers impose on these types of transitions, especially physical transitions and so on. Um, what, what are your thoughts on, on that? And have you seen it as this Yeah, great question. Um, well, first of all, there is no medical test for whether somebody is trans. <laughs> I can tell you, having been through the system, it's one of those conditions where it's self-diagnosis. The person knows, and you do have to trust that person. Obviously, when it comes to the, the surgery element, doctors aren't stupid. And the current system, and it has been the way for a long time, um, is essentially that... You can socially transition. There's no problem with that whatsoever, despite, again, I go back to all of these pop-up groups that have um, come out with their pseudo-reports from gender-critical academics and what have you. But the history is that there's, there's no problem with socially transitioning, which is essentially changing your name, how you wear your hair, how you dress. It's, it's nothing permanent whatsoever. Um, so my, my view is that the current system, I can understand why there are safeguards on the medical side when you get to that stage. Um, and I think it's, it's obviously it's perfectly fine that doctors should not be just dishing out things willy-nilly, but they don't actually do that anyway. There is a, a long-standing period where you go to see a doctor. If you, this is, I'm talking here for people who want to medically transition, because obviously trans encompasses people who are quite happy just identifying as trans, which I don't see a problem with either. You know, if somebody wants to identify as trans, that's fine. Um, but if you go down the medical route, then obviously the, pe the, the professionals involved will have a period where they will monitor you, how you feel, just to make sure that it's the right thing for you 
And obviously they don't want to get into a situation where they get into trouble for putting somebody down that um, route that isn't suited to it. But ultimately it is um, a self-declaration. There is more scientific biological evidence for trans people than there is for gay people. Yet we don't ask gay people to, to prove themselves in a particular way. It's just a case of, I'm gay, and it's accepted. I always say um, that trans people actually need to aspire to reach dog level. And by that, I mean that if you're out for a walk in the park and you come across somebody with a nice pooch, and you say, oh, aren't they lovely? Is it a boy or a girl? And the owner says, oh, it's a girl. You go, oh, good girl. And you just accept it. And you get on with your life. And that is the level that trans people need to reach. And we're not there yet. Um, uh, does anyone else have any questions? Um, we might go in the pink jumper. Yeah, it's really difficult. Thank you. Can I just say a big thank you for, for being the only person in the, the town or the village that is sticking up for us. So that's really appreciated. Um, it's, it's really difficult because it comes down to the, the numbers thing again. Uh, by the sounds of it, you're, you're clearly outnumbered um, to a, a great degree. Um, but I think the, the facts speak for themselves. I would just hone in on the fact that there has never been... a, a Trans people have always existed in every culture, in every society throughout history. I think there are recorded examples of um, Roman trans people as far back as that. And there has never been um, an epidemic of trans violence or even people pretending to be trans and going out. It's something that exists in B-movies that you would see on a Sunday afternoon in some, you know, cheap cinema, um, really. But I get also that that is really difficult. You, you can say that and you can have right and the facts on your side, but when you're up against Fox News and... <laughs> You know, the climate in, in, in America, if it's a very conservative town, um, then, then it's difficult. I think you've just got to keep chipping away. Just don't go wild. Just, yeah, stay calm and do it. Thank you. Um, we have time for about two more questions. So we might go... Oh, I think we can do three. Um, might go in the middle over there. Hi. Um, so a lot of people debate about is trans, so some people say that there's an infinite amount of genders, some people say that being transgender only comes under people who have had reassignments mm -hmm. and then you will have a few people who unfortunately say that trans people don't exist. I appreciate your views are online, however, where do you specifically draw the line between what is someone who is transgender and someone who is not transgender? 
well, I used to have a line. This is a really good question, actually, because even even as a, a trans person, m- my backstory is I didn't really have any LGBT friends at all. I, I kind of grew up in a similar place as yourself. Um, which it wasn't around me, although I knew this was going on in my head, I never actually thought I, I'd act on it. So when I actually became public and unknown, I had a lot of LGBT organisations and charities come on to me and say, look, we'd really like you to get involved and speak up for us on this and blah, blah, blah. And I was thinking, whoa, hold on a sec. You know, I'm not going to take on all your problems. I've had to fight by myself. I'm just going to look after myself. And that's what I did. I kind of did initially. And I was very territorial. And I was saying, I'm trans. You're not trans because you haven't medically transitioned. So you're not. But it's all about education, isn't it? And I educated myself. Actually, when I say I educated myself, other people educated myself me because if I say I educated myself that that makes it sounds like I was willing to do it I wasn't I was quite reluctant and you will see things in the early days of me where I was quite standoffish about the trans um, community I didn't want to get involved with all that all the, the problems that were going on but when you talk to people eventually it sinks in you know just chip, chip away and drip, 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 stay calm and eventually it will get through. So now my, my view is that if somebody wants to identify as trans, I have, it's none of my business. That's completely fine. Um, at the end of the day, you know, you, you get bad people in every demographic, Whatsoever. So there are going to be mur- there are going to be black murderers. There are going to be gay murderers. You know, trans murderers. Wh- whatever that they are going to crop up. But it's holding whole demographics responsible for that one occurrence and saying this is why this group cannot have rights. So to answer your question, I I, I have no line. If somebody wants. Uh, to be trans and identify as trans, I don't think they should have to to prove it. The, except if they're they're going for a medical procedure, um, I think that it's fair enough to ask for some evidence of commitment, and that that is definitely what you want. But generally, through life, I think anyone can identify as trans. Um, we might have two more questions. Um, we go at the front here. Yeah, uh, well, the, the worst aspect is that it's, it's very one-dimensional uh, for me, whereas I used to do lots of different kind of topics and what have you. Now it's kind of, kind of narrowed down uh, to this. Um, but I, I am trying to change it a little bit this year. I'm doing first dates, the 10th anniversary episode, um, which I think is going out in January, and that was fantastic. I loved to. That it was so good. Um, um, and then I've, I've just done a, I actually last week I did a thing Channel 4 are doing a documentary it is trans related it's um, did anyone ever see a show on Sky TV there's something about Miriam does anybody know about 
that one. So th this was a reality show where it was a dating show and you had a fantastic looking woman called Miriam on a yacht and it, I think it was 10 guys tried to get a date with her and then but, and each week one, it was whittled down and then the final week it was revealed that Miriam was actually trans and the guy went on the date and he collected his money but then he sued the production company for the trauma that it had caused him except some big brouhaha about that. Um, and trying to do different things um, the, I think the, the one thing that I wouldn't do was I, I got offered na naked celebrity naked attraction which is for anyone who hasn't seen it is when you stand in this human sized test tube which <laughs> gradually rises up um, so I, I just wouldn't do that they couldn't get anybody to do it I think somebody from Made in Chelsea said yeah I'll do it but nobody else would um, I think we had three hands up last time, so we'll just try to get through all three of those questions. So we'll start at the front and then go. Sorry, what's your name? Lola. Lola. Yeah, Lola. I always knew. I can't think of a moment in my life where it wasn't kind of on my... in my head. It was the first thought in the morning when I woke up and the, the last night. And I don't know how you find it. it. It was always there. I could go through spells when I could kind of ignore it Um and try and be this person that everybody expected me to be. And I, and I genuinely tried that. That's what I wanted. I didn't want to have this thing going on in, in the background of who I was. I'd have, I'd have liked nothing better than to just have been a, a normal boy and become a man and just had a normal life. But I, I couldn't get away from it. Um, so growing up, it was it was difficult. I kind of reached a point when I was I was certainly still at junior school, um, probably about nine or ten, where I thought, right, I'm just going to try and buckle down and try and be the best boy that I can. Um, and then I I just got I just went along with life, as it were. But I think it's it was it was different different then because that's the seventies and eighties, and I was very aware, acutely aware, that if I'd have said something to somebody, there was a good chance that I'd have been carted off, you know, maybe had electric shock treatment or whatever. Um, so I kept quiet about it, and I. I did every all the things that people expected me. I I, I always compared it to being. Um, on stage and the curtain's about to go up but somebody's giving you the wrong script so you're playing the wrong part and you have the choice of either whoa, whoa, holding your hand up with a packed audience saying, hold on a sec, you, you, I, I've got the wrong script or just going along with it and I took the chicken's way out and I tried to go along with it but it was always there and it just reached a stage where I got to about 40, um, where I couldn't go on. I just, I literally couldn't go on. I thought, life isn't worth living. Why, why, why am I 
pretending to be somebody else. I can't, I just can't do this. Um, so what about you? I think it's great. I th- my one big regret in life, actually, is that I didn't speak up. I think it's fantastic, honestly, that these days more young people actually have the guts and the confidence to lift their hands up. So credit to you. That's brilliant. Um, we might go the person right behind. Yeah. Um, you said earlier about bias in the media. I was just wondering if you uh, had your opinion as a, as a broadcaster on how to sort of spot it or if it's going away. It's, it's saying... Um, I think... I think for the foreseeable future, it, it sadly is here to stay. Um, you, you ha- the, the gender-critical movement have a virtual monopoly on, on the media. You have a clutch of um, columnists, um, women of a certain age, and there are, we, we, we know from people who've told us that they have a, a WhatsApp group so you will have the Guardian, the Times, and the Mail, and it's extremely coordinated. This is the thing that I'm reluctant about saying, but you know, credit to them. The gender critical movement is incredibly organised, and they they will actually have a schedule of what aspect of trans they're going to go and kick on a particular week, and the other ones will do another one on that. So. It, it's very it's a very coordinated campaign it is a war effectively so unfortunately i think it's a waiting game until these people um are no longer doing their jobs for whatever reason and there is there's such a reliance from the trans community on people of your generation coming through and changing that because it they are going to have to take on new journalists and broadcasters and voices um, eventually. Um, and that's actually, yeah, that's who all of our hopes are, are pinned on, people like yourselves. It's very difficult to spot as well. That was something else that you asked about. Because um, they're clever with their language. Um, they will... What, what, in the most obvious example I can give you, and you, bear in mind, you know, I'm talking about somebody at home watching a TV or listening to, a, to the radio who have no investment in the trans community. They don't know anybody. So the, the only um, picture they're getting is coming from the radio or the TV. And they will hear somebody talk about um, trans people are going to be banned from this, blah, 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 blah. Da, 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 da. And then in the middle of the conversation, it will start talking about, um, well, obviously men are faster than women, you know, men are stronger than women. And, well, they are. They absolutely are. But you've gone to, to like a crossing point, a junction, the points on the train track in that conversation where you've moved from trans people, specifically trans women in the instance that I'm giving, to men. So you're, you're blending those two things together. Now, if you're aware, you might spot that. But the truth is, for most people at home, and I understand it, they're, they're not going to spot that. They're gonna, it, and in, in that conversation, you're also 
being successful in pitching the trans person as a man. Or you could do it in reverse, you know, um, the other way around. So, yeah, it's, it's really difficult. And I'm, I'm kind of resigned there. It is a long game. But you're our hope. Please help us. <laughs> um, I think we have room for one last question. Um, yeah, right at the back. I only took three dollars. Um, so thank you for your time here. I wanted to ask, being in the sort of institution like the media, the newspaper, and now in Cambridge University, what does it mean to you to be able to be openly transgender and talk about transgender issues in these sort of big spaces and for so many people to hear it? Yeah, well, well thank you for asking me. It's such an honour. It really is. I, I, I genuinely feel humble um, being invited. And it's just great to, to be in an environment where, as I've explained, I won't go over a stony ground here, but, you know, generally now the places I go, I'm, I kind of automatically put my elbows out and, and, and go into defence mode because I... I'm, I'm anticipating the hostility that's going to come my way. And it's just so refreshing to be in an environment where I can tell, you know, people are open-minded and you've, you've come out to listen, which just means a lot to me. Um, so, sorry, what was, it, what was the other part of your question to say again? Yeah, it's, 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 it's great. It's, it's wonderful. And this is... When we talk about how do we change things, maybe this is something that I, I hadn't considered before, and you can kind of circumnavigate the traditional media by doing it other routes, such as this, coming to institutions and, uh, and just getting out there and meeting people. Maybe that's a way of changing minds. But, yeah, I, I just love... I wish I was honestly 20 or 30 years younger it is going to get better i always say to people as well that um gandhi who i love gandhi absolutely fantastic and there's a there's a famous saying some people question whether he actually said it but it is attributed to him um and the saying is that um first they ignore you first, then they laugh at you then they fight you, then you win. And I think trans people at the moment, we've been ignored, we've been laughed at in the, the 70s when it was Dick Emery, Les Dawson and all that kind of thing. But now we're at the fight stage and then we win. So the good thing is that we've gone through those three stages that, Again, all minorities have, have, have gone through. Nobody has gifted black rights or gay rights. There, is a, there has been a, a period of conflict. And I think, sadly, I naively thought that because of the times that we were living in and that we would look back on history and, and could see what had happened and how pointless it was resisting progress, that it would be the same for us. But... Clearly, it, it, it's not. But we will come through, ultimately. 
Thank you so much, India. Um, and thank you so much to everyone for coming to what I hope um, was a really fruitful conversation. Um, and as we celebrate the Transgender Day of Remembrance um, today, um, it's an absolute pleasure to have you. And we've been able to have such an insightful Great. conversation. I, I was going to say, I will yeah. survive. Or would you not like, no, no, I'm not. <laughs> um, and on looking to at the union this week, I just wanted to remind everyone that we have a lot of events coming up. Um, uh, tomorrow we have Matt Cain to talk about being a queer writer and navigating the queer space um, through literature. Um, and then on Wednesday we have Caroline Calloway before our debate on Thursday and then a panel about being a young musician in Britain. So please do come to a lot of our other events as well. But please put your hands together for India Will Be one more time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.